Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, May 15th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on the phone is Brian Patrick Eha, a journalist whose work has been published by Fortune, The New Yorker, and CNN Money, and a variety of other publications. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. How are you? I am doing pretty good. Um, I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, Brian is here to talk about his book, How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. And listeners, this is super exciting for me. I knew very, very little about Bitcoin before reading this book. This book got me sufficiently up to speed that I could talk about Bitcoin on a different show and actually sound mostly coherent. I didn't even get any emails (laughs) saying like, hey, you have no idea what you're talking about. So I know I must have been right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so let's kind of start with some of the basics uh, for people who've never heard of Bitcoin, which I don't think that there's that many people left, but it's still a pretty confusing topic. So what is Bitcoin? What What is Bitcoin? What's blockchain technology? Why are those two things always going together? Sure. So, in the simplest terms, a Bitcoin is a form of commodity money. When it was released in January 2009, originally its promise was to be a truly universal currency, a form of electronic cash that could be sent around the globe in minutes, and that would work as well in New York as it does in New Delhi. Uh, transactions were supposed to be anonymous, And it all happened on a network that existed independently of any government or bank. So Bitcoin can serve as a unit of exchange, something with which you buy a plane ticket or a pair of shoes, or as a store of value, like gold. That's the double meaning in commodity money. And it's also a revolutionary payment system that can send money in the form, of course, of Bitcoins uh, directly from person to person in minutes anywhere in the world. Now, blockchain The blockchain is the technological breakthrough that makes Bitcoin possible. It's basically a decentralized, tamper-proof ledger for recording transactions, which I know sounds like the least sexy thing in the world. (laughs) Uh, But the revolutionary thing about it is that it allows for transactions to be verified and recorded without the need for a central authority, which normally would be a payments company like PayPal or Venmo, or it would be a government or a bank. So with the blockchain businesses and services of businesses can be decentralized. It simultaneously cuts out middlemen that add costs to the system, and it removes any single points of failure in the system all in one fell swoop. So a lot of financial institutions remain wary of Bitcoin itself, but they've seized eagerly on blockchain technology because it could uh, cut their back office costs. It could help them do a lot of things more quickly, more transparently, more cheaply. And uh, large tech firms like Microsoft have done the same. So they're all setting up blockchain labs and working groups to study it and coming out with proofs of concept and so on. Yeah, that's really cool. I was reading that IBM was doing the same thing. And it's crazy because most people think IBM and they kind of think stodgy. But this is pretty cutting edge stuff. Um, Actually, I kind of want to get into something that you said about um, each about cutting out the middlemen. Um, In your book, you talk a lot about the history of Bitcoin, and what I hadn't realized, but what makes total sense in retrospect, is that Bitcoin has a really strong libertarian streak, and it's it's like a bunch of libertarian nerds who got together and were like, everyone should be their own bank. There shouldn't be government interfering with people's financial matters. Can you talk a little bit about just like the founding of Bitcoin and, and what that looked like? Sure. So by the time Bitcoin came along, uh, crypto anarchists and some digital libertarians had been 
talking for years about the need for digital cash that could just be peer to peer. Um, and crypto anarchists are essentially people who want to use encryption technology and peer to peer network culture to increase personal liberty as they see it and uh, undermine the state control. Uh, so as a philosophical movement, crypto anarchy kind of emerged in the early 1990s in California among a group of people who called themselves cypherpunks. I love and that were, name, by the way, yeah, so much. Yeah, and it totally makes sense that it came out of California. Um, it was it was great branding, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I <laughs> Listeners, you might not know this. I love punk music. <laughs> and I especially love punk music that has come out of California. So if you ever want to chat about it with me, shoot me an email. But go ahead, cypherpunks. Yeah, sure. So they were actually organized kind of around this electronic mailing list, not unlike the one on which uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin's creator, would later announce his invention to the world. Uh, so these earlier guys, they made some attempts of their own to create digital cash, but there were a couple of problems they couldn't figure out how to solve. One was, if my money exists in electronic form, how do I keep it from being counterfeited and spent over and over again, the same way you can send infinite copies of a Word document or a digital photo? So Satoshi solved that, and the first chapter of my book is all about these origins of Bitcoin, its precursors, and what makes it a breakthrough that really rivals the invention of the telephone or maybe even the internet. But you're right that these once Bitcoin was invented, the, the libertarians and the crypto anarchists were kind of among the first to see its potential and start using it. And um, you weren't aware of it because the later Bitcoin users are not they don't necessarily subscribe to those same ideals they may even clash with the ideals of those kind of radical early adopters but but ordinary people today would probably never have heard of bitcoin if not for for those uh crypto anarchists yeah and it it sounds from reading your book um it's really interesting because um it looks like the roots of bitcoin like the reason it really got started was because of these people with this libertarian bent who were using it to purchase things that are perhaps not illegal in the or not legal in the wider world, um, I'm talking specifically about Silk Road, uh, and that that's also kind of like an outgrowth of like the government shouldn't be able to tell me what to do. Can you can backing up? Can you tell listeners what Silk Road is and why it was so important to Bitcoin? Sure. So Silk Road was the world's first so-called crypto market, a new kind of secretive online black market that did a booming trade in illegal drugs. It was run by this 20-something Texan named Ross Ulbricht, who called himself Dread Pirate Roberts after the uh, Princess Bride character. And he was kind of a libertarian philosopher drug lord. And he, he did a <laughs> lot, he did a lot to associate radical, you know, free market principles with Bitcoin and the popular imagination. But but beyond that, the importance of Silk Road pragmatically really can't be overestimated. The um, the illicit commerce on Albrecht's market, which opened in January 2011, it drove a lot of early demand for Bitcoin because Bitcoin was the only form of payment allowed on Silk Road. Uh, for the first two years of Bitcoin's existence, I mentioned it launched in January 2009. For the first two years, it really had almost no monetary value at all. But soon after Silk Road launched, the price of Bitcoin went above one US dollar for the first time ever and has never dropped below it since. Um, but by the time Ross Ulbricht was arrested in October 2013, there were still, you know, these black markets. People were still using Bitcoin to buy illegal drugs online and so on. But the Bitcoin economy was much, much larger at that point. And the, the shutdown of Silk Road by the feds uh, didn't do anything to shut down Bitcoin. In fact, the price of Bitcoin went on a huge run after that point, And uh, there was a lot of excitement from that point on. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because I mean, Bitcoin really hasn't been around for that long when you think about it in the grand scheme of things. But um, I, I believe that one of like the first legitimate uses of Bitcoin to pay for something was pizza. Right. And that actually happened on May 22nd, 2010. And May 22nd is my birthday, as it happens. <laughs> uh, well, but... happy birthday soon. <laughs> Thank you. But yes, uh, someone got the bright idea to ask if someone else would order him a couple of I believe Papa John's pizzas over the internet, and in exchange he would send some huge amount, like twenty-five thousand bitcoins or something. Uh, I forget the exact number, and which of course now would be worth millions upon millions of dollars. And um, he, they, they did it, but it was just a kind of proof of concept that yes, this works. You can send digital money across the world and uh, and interact on a peer-to-peer basis without anybody else, you know, being involved in that transaction and. That was kind of as 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 ridiculous as it was. That was the first time I think anyone had exchanged Bitcoin for any other form of value. So it is a bit of a milestone, and people like to to mark the occasion every year. Yeah, it's really wild. Um, listeners, Bitcoin's price today is one thousand seven hundred thirty three dollars and ninety nine cents, which is right. that's a lot of money for a pizza <laughs> now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but no, so like. One of the things with Silk Road, like there are some potential, I guess, downsides maybe to Bitcoin, which is that it kind of works outside of this regulatory sphere. Um, this weekend, we actually saw a, a, the a malware attack called um, WannaCry, where people's right. stuff was, or their files on their computer were held ransom, and people had to pay these hackers with Bitcoin in order to get their files back. And that like has right. temporarily gone, off, gone offline, but it's going to come back online soon, probably, once the hackers fix the thing that took it offline. Um, what what are kind of some of these the downsides of Bitcoin? Well, I think you said it, the, the downsides of Bitcoin. Uh, one of them is that it because it's a form of money that is harder to trace than uh, normal transactions and uh, it can be sent just directly from person to person. It doesn't have to go through the same kind of channels that uh, are easy for law enforcement to monitor. And so it does allow cyber criminals on the other side of the world to kind of reach out and and harm people. I, I mean, to be honest, they can reach out and harm people even without Bitcoin. Of course, computer viruses and worms have been around for a long time. It's just that this kind of adds a monetary element. That before maybe they were just doing it for the hell of it. They were doing it to uh, just mess with people and kind of show off their skills. Now they can actually uh, do it as a business and uh, and make a lot of money from it. And in fact, this is something I've looked into. And cyber criminals are raking in hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, from ransomware. And this is even before the WannaCry outbreak. I haven't looked into exactly how much money that might have yielded for the people behind it, but. Um, you know, so the good news is that uh, Bitcoin can also provide things like cheaper remittances. Um, you know, this is uh, one of the big, big pain points for a lot of people around the world. There are two billion adults in the world that have no bank account, and when they have to, uh, you know, immigrants send money back home to their families, um, they have to go through Western Union or MoneyGram, and they're charged really high fees. And it's often the poorest people who are charged the the highest ones. So migrants uh, from sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, pay an average of almost 10% when they send money back to their loved ones. And the global average is 7.5%, which is still pretty enormous. Uh, and remittances were ignored by economists for a long time, but they've recently realized it's a $600 billion market. 
this this amount of money that's flowing uh, around the world. And for countries like Mexico and India, it's one of the largest chunks of their GDP. So Bitcoin, because the transaction fees are so low compared to traditional uh, methods, it has a chance to kind of grab a piece of that market while putting billions of dollars back in people's pockets. In fact, there's a venture-backed company called Abra that is using Bitcoin today to provide cheaper remittances to, I think, it's over 100 countries. I'm not sure exactly how many, uh, but they claim to be able to reduce these remittance fees by as much as 90%. So those are kind of two sides of the same coin, and they both <laughs> are based Bitcoin, on the fact that... if you might say. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that <laughs> right, was, no. No, I no, couldn't that's help okay. myself. That's okay. But they're both based on, you know, that's what I'm, I guess I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that the downsides of Bitcoin are kind of inextricably intertwined with the upsides of Bitcoin. This thing that allows it to be sent peer to peer around the world for, you know, very low uh, transaction costs in minutes without necessarily getting anybody else involved. It's the same, you know, so it has very positive and some negative uh, uh, consequences. Definitely. It's actually something I was talking about with Simon Erickson, who's one of the investors here at The Motley Fool, um, which is the future of finance is probably going to end up being decided in de- in the developing world because they're mm. completely skipping over like banks with right. physical footprints. They're going straight to, to mobile right. um, technology to, to transfer right. money. And a lot of them are keeping kind of like these Bitcoin-esque right. wallet things to, to transfer this money. And it it's really, really interesting. Like they're using blockchain technology to make sure that like government documents are well recorded, mm-hmm. um, something that you couldn't really do before that. It's right. really interesting and something that we'll probably dive into on a future episode. Right. I mean, one of the, <clears throat> in addition to the lack of bank accounts, a lot of people in the developing world, uh, they don't have photo IDs, they don't have uh, official identification. And so people are working on methods that you can use blockchain technology to kind of um, securely uh, store, you know, proof of people's identities that can be used uh, for all kinds of things. So yeah, it's true. A lot of a lot of people from the early days were critics were saying, well, why use Bitcoin if I can use a credit card or this or that. But a lot of the most forward looking advocates of Bitcoin were saying, Really, the use case is for the developing world. There are uses of it in the developed world, but where it's really going to become huge and then maybe and then maybe surge and come back into the developed world will be with people who who have cell phones, as you mentioned, where they can have mobile money and digital wallets to hold their balances, but they don't have bank accounts. So something like Bitcoin is kind of perfect for that. Yeah, I don't. It's definitely super exciting. But next question for you, talking about the developed world, especially the U.S. Sure. What do you what do you think about the legal slash regulatory future for Bitcoin? Um, we know that the Winklevoss's ETF uh, got rejected by the SEC mm. recently. Um, they said that it was moving money around in a way that might be harmful. Um, and I and I think that you said right before we started the show that they're going to that the SEC has decided to reconsider their decision. But who knows what they're going to say? It could be yes. It could be no. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Jamie Dimon would be one of the people that uh, you know, this chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase has uh, said that governments will kind of flatten Bitcoin before it can become a true competitor to the dollar, uh, the pound, or the euro. 
But I think there are good reasons to believe he's wrong. Um, the monthly transaction volume of Bitcoin has continued to climb. The price is at uh, close to its all-time high, which it reached just in the last week or so. The user base keeps growing. I mean, a report out of Cambridge University last month found that the number of cryptocurrency users worldwide now rivals the population of small countries. And so at a certain point, it gets difficult, I think, to ban Bitcoin outright or to come down on it. And too hard. I mean, to be honest, if the U.S. government were going to do that, I think it would have done it already. Instead, what we've seen is that the IRS has said, OK, you can use bitcoins, but you have to pay taxes on them. And FinCEN and other regulators have said to Bitcoin startups, OK, you can be you know, you can work with this digital currency, but you still have to register as a money transmitting business or something like that. So they're trying to kind of enfold it into the existing regulatory scheme. Now, the more radical Bitcoiners uh, would say that it's going to be disruptive to the existing uh, regulatory regime, just like the Internet was, uh, but that perhaps just like, you know, if, if, the, if the government had known from the get-go what the Internet would turn into, they probably would have come down a lot harder on it in its early days. They would have tried to get their arms around it much, much sooner and much more um, you know, stringently. But there are a lot of people who think that Bitcoin is going to be the same way. They kind of won't realize just how disruptive it's going to be until it's a little too late for them to do anything about it. Uh, what I will say is that there are still challenges to overcome if Bitcoin is going to succeed. And some of them are not regulatory. Some of them are inherent in the very rules of the Bitcoin software. It's, uh, it's still unclear whether Bitcoin can scale up sufficiently to serve the needs of a global user base while staying true to its origins as digital cash. Or, you know, whether it's going to kind of stay a niche technology and, and maybe eventually die out. So, you know, the future of Bitcoin is not yet written, but we are, I would say, well past the point where we know the technology is good for something. And there are people in Washington who realize that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And listeners, part of the reason that the, the, the government is so invested in, like, trying to figure out regulations around Bitcoin is because of anti-monetary anti-money laundering laws and know your customer laws just to make sure that money isn't getting funneled into illegal operations and that's and that's where a lot of the the restrictions on bitcoin from the federal government come from is they're saying they're not meeting these standards but of course bitcoin was designed so that you wouldn't have to know anyone right, right? like you wouldn't have to disclose anything so it's it's kind of like this fundamental mismatch between what regulators want and what the original Bitcoin people want. Well, it's also important to understand just how much regulations have changed in the last 15 years or so. Um, Peter Thiel, I saw him at a, a public debate in New York a couple of years ago, and he was very open about saying a company like PayPal could never have been founded in a post 9-11 world. We would have been accused of money laundering. And so that is something to understand, too, that the things that that kind of Bitcoin pioneers have run afoul of are things that earlier pioneers would also have run afoul of. They just have to deal with a much more stringent regulatory regime than what existed before. Yeah, definitely. It's it's an interesting thing, and it's definitely a space to watch. Um, I just want to switch gears real quick um, and talk sure. about the book itself, because um, the book was like was really great for a few different reasons, besides it actually explained Bitcoin to me in a way that I understood. It's incredibly well-written, and it's a super 
bold and interesting approach to writing about Bitcoin. Most people would write like a textbook or focus on the technicalities, and you actually created this set of narratives and interwove them, and you humanize the main players in Bitcoin while simultaneously teaching the reader about Bitcoin along the way. Um, it actually kind of reminds me of those recipes that are like secretly feed your child vegetables by hi- hiding them in mac and cheese. That, that's what your book felt like to me. I was like, oh, I learned something and I was entertained along the way. Um, this is a really accessible book for the average person. And I kind of just have a, a few questions about your, your writing style. Listeners know that we, we really enjoy good writing here at The Motley Fool. Um, so, first question, why, why did you write this book? Well, I think it was partly that it, it's Bitcoin, when I first heard about it, it really struck me as an idea whose time had come. I mentioned Peter Thiel just a minute ago, and early internet pioneers had always envisioned that a payments protocol would be woven into the fabric of the web. Uh, and when Peter Thiel was building PayPal, his original ambition was for it to be an internet currency that would replace the US dollar for online transactions. But it was the post 9-11 regulations that forced him to pivot away from that. So. The brilliant thing that uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin's creator, did was rather than found a new company like PayPal, he built a decentralized system that no one would own, but anyone could participate in. Uh, so the first that, that that really interested me. And then the first time I wrote about Bitcoin was in the summer of 2012. I'll never forget. I was a staff writer at CNN Money uh, briefly. And when I pitched this Bitcoin story to my editor, she told me, you know, go ahead and do it but uh, don't make too much of it. She said, you know, Bitcoin is just a digital curiosity. It's a plaything for crypto anarchists. Well, yeah, I didn't see it that way exactly, but, but I also didn't know a lot about Bitcoin at the time. So I went and did the story. And as I talked to the employees of this one Bitcoin startup in Manhattan, I was just overwhelmed with the, the realization that Bitcoin had real potential. I mean, these, these guys were young, hungry, they're passionate. They were willing to, you know, kind of, do the Mark Zuckerberg thing and moving fast and breaking And I was just fascinated by how they were risking everything to build the early foundations of a new economy. And the CEO of that startup actually became one of the main characters in my book. So at that point, I just knew I wanted to keep following the story. And as it got bigger and bigger and more and more headlines came out, I just, I really saw how rich uh, a book length narrative could be. Well, back by the way, when I did that first story for CNN Money, uh, the price of a single Bitcoin was less than $10, and all the Bitcoins in existence put together were worth less than $100 million. And now, as you mentioned, Bitcoin's above 1700 Its market cap is somewhere close to $30 billion. So <laughs> I, I think I made the right choice to take it seriously. Yeah, definitely. It's actually, it's really just a side note to listeners. It's really interesting because um, you get Bitcoins by mining, which is basically you have these computers solve these problems, and the problems get increasingly hard as you go along. So right now, there's about 16.8 million Bitcoins in circulation. But there is a known cap of the total amount of bitcoins that could mm-hmm. ever possibly exist, which I believe is like 21 million, right? Right. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. It is it is it does act a little bit more like a commodity, like gold, where there is a finite amount of gold in the world, just like there's a finite amount of bitcoin in the world. It's right. It's, it's definitely a really really interesting thing. But um, right. back to the book, which is uh, sure. my next question is, what was your favorite story to tell? You told a lot of different people's stories. Which one mm. was your favorite? I think of the main characters, probably this guy Charlie Schrems story resonates with me 
maybe the most because he was just a young middle class guy living with his parents in Brooklyn before he discovered Bitcoin. And he ended up co-founding one of the major early startups that was actually the first to receive serious venture capital funding. And of all the major players in those days, he was perhaps the one most gratified by the attention and most eager for the publicity, you know, the fame, the respect that came from his leadership role in the community. And he also ended up suffering more than most. He had to spend uh, more than a year in federal prison as a result of some some things he did in the Bitcoin space. And so there's there's a pathos there, the story of this middle class kid made good and his fall from grace. And now actually he's out of prison and he's uh, working on making a comeback. So that's that's all kind of compelling to me. Yeah, that's and it, it is a really interesting and great story. And it, it like so perfectly illustrates like kind of like the rise and fall and rise again of Bitcoin. Um, that is the whole like overarching story. Um, so, Brian, I don't know if you know this, but we are kind of obsessed with reading here at The Fool. Uh, we sure. do an annual reading list. We love interviewing authors like you. We have a bunch of book clubs. So, I'm going to ask you a few different questions about books and reading. Uh, sure. What are you reading right now? Uh, well, I've always got a number of books going at any one time. Uh, right now, a few of the ones I'm reading are Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, which honestly I should have read years ago. It's brilliant. Uh, I'm reading The Collected Poems of Philip Larkin. And I'm reading this other book that's a, it's a huge doorstop called The Creators, A History of Heroes of the Imagination by Daniel J. Borston. And it was a national bestseller when it came out in the 90s. And it essentially traces thousands of years of human history from the point of view of uh, creativity and the creators who kind of um, pushed, you know, the, the the boundaries of the imagination forward all the way from Stonehenge and ancient Egypt uh, through James Joyce and, you know, uh, Picasso and, and on into the future. That sounds really interesting. Um, I will probably pick that up at some point and read it piecemeal over the course of a couple of years. Oh, it's definitely a book that you can read piecemeal and still get a lot out of it. Yeah. Excellent. Um, what's one thing that you think everyone should read and it doesn't have to be Bitcoin related? Well, I'm going to do this as a two-part answer. I think the one thing about Bitcoin that everyone should read is Satoshi Nakamoto's original white paper, which uh, Bitcoin itself was released in January 2009, but the white paper came out a few months before that, and it was essentially a technical paper explaining, this is the system I've built, this is what I'd like to do, this is how it will work. And it's only a few pages long. It's really accessible to pretty much anyone. And I think it's just an important founding document for anyone who wants to understand this uh, really revolutionary technology. I think the one thing not Bitcoin related that everyone should read in these days is um, the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson, which I return to again and again. And I just I find them a useful corrective to some of the just the current trends of our time in society and politics. Um, there's a lot of, I think, groupthink going on. A lot of people, especially in my industry, talk about uh, filter bubbles, which is basically on social media. We only follow people who think like we do and say the things we want to hear. And uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson is all about being a nonconformist and about kind of charting your own path and thinking for yourself. So it's, uh, it's really valuable in this day and age. Those are two really wonderful answers. Um... I really, I really love Emerson. Um, and also, I really love that you suggested a primary source document for Bitcoin. Um, I think it's really, really important that people go back and look at w how things were originally written. And that kind of combats what you're talking about, those filter bubbles, um, because you can see what the original data, what the original evidence said. 
Um, right. Super, super interesting. Uh, is there anything else you want to say as we as we wrap up this interview? No, I wish I had something prepared. Well, I guess the one thing I would just say is that, um, you know, I think in the history of money and in the digital economy, Bitcoin does not mark an endpoint as far as I can tell. But I do think it marks a point like the invention of the telephone from which there can be no turning back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Um, if you ever write another book, definitely let us know. <laughs> and sure, let's stay in touch. Yeah, I would love that. Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus, um, and let us know what you thought about the show, and if you have any other questions about Bitcoin, I can see this becoming a pretty reliable topic for us. Thank you to Austin Morgan, today's producer. Austin, would you buy Bitcoin? A little, little, little pricey. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us and have a great week.